The opinions or assertions contained herein are the private views of Andrew Fisher and are not to be construed as official or as reflecting the views of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, Texas Army National Guard, Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. Now let's get on with the show. Yeah, people think it's a pretty easy uh, pretty easy thing to manage. Um, and I always tell people well, it's easy to manage if all you have is a, is a tourniquet and an ambulance. Welcome to this episode of the Flight Crit Podcast, your place for pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport education. In this episode of the podcast, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Andy Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a general surgery resident at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. He has a special interest in pre-hospital trauma resuscitation and is considered by many to be the father of the Army Ranger Olo Titer Whole Blood Transfusion Program. Prior to medical school, Dr. Fisher served as the regimental physician advisor for the 75th Ranger Regiment in Fort Benning, Georgia, and has also spent time working as a civilian paramedic. We hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Fisher. Now let's get on with the show. Uh, hey, I was looking over your question real quick. The only one that I'm not going to be able to answer is actually the INR for whole blood. I was actually, I saw that pop up and I was like, shit, I don't even know. And so I actually started trying to look it up today yes. and I couldn't, I couldn't find anything on it. I mean, I can, I'll, I'll you know, maybe I can hit up Andre Cap and ask him. He'd probably know. Ah, that actually makes me feel good that we came up with a question you couldn't answer. Yeah. Like seriously, like, I don't, I'm like, fuck, I don't know. I'd never even thought about it because I'm like, I'm more worried about what's the INR of the patient, maybe. Right. No. I, I, yeah. That's. I mean, it's an interesting question because you guys have a perspective that often I don't think about, um, which I think is great about medicine. Is is you know kind of challenging and and one I think people should disagree with me. I love it when people disagree because I think that creates for better outcomes. But yeah, it's like thinking about shit that I don't think about because it's just I don't. I don't. So yeah. It's yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the patient population that you're dealing with in the military is very different than the patient population that we're necessarily dealing dealing with. Um, yeah. And we say it all the time, excellence through collaboration, right? You know, when, we're, yeah. when we have these conversations, you really kind of expand that conversation. You have an opportunity to really think about things that you may not have thought about in the past, uh, think mm-hmm. about things in a different way. Uh, that's, yeah. why, that's why we love doing these, these podcasts yeah. and talking to people like yourself. Yeah. So, cool. Cool, man. Yeah, and I know your jam is whole blood, um, but I'm hoping that you can kind of school us a little bit on some stuff with TXA as well. Oh no, I do TXA too. I'm 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 a skeptic. Are you? Okay, I like that, right? Because we have a lot of skeptics here where we work, and we we will regularly get the the pushback from the trauma doc saying, "Hey, if your transport time to the tertiary care facility is short, don't even bother giving it." Yeah. So, which is kind of counter to what we initially were trained. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's I think it's um I don't know. We 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 can definitely talk about it and argue if you want. I it doesn't bother me. Um so I and I and I don't like with regards to TXA, I don't have an argument either, you know, one way or the other. We give it because, you know, we're told this is the right thing to do. Um but when the evidence changes or if there's evidence out there that that tells me I shouldn't be doing it and my medical director agrees, then I won't do it. So yeah, yeah. it's I mean Coming from somebody who's who's probably given you know, a thousand times more TXA than I ever have, um, I'm I'd love to hear your opinion. Where we're working, you know, we may have you know we may have a, a ten or fifteen minute transport time to mm-hmm. to a trauma center, or we might have you know forty five minutes to an hour plus, mm-hmm. right? So is there benefits? Or is there not? You know, within that window of time, if we're looking at somebody who's an hour in, you know, from their trauma and now we get to them, now we're able to deliver that therapy and now we have an hour flight time. Is there a benefit? You know, mm-hmm. what, I don't know. What do you, you said you're a skeptic. What's, what, uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's probably the most important thing. What you mentioned is when was the patient injured? Uh, I think that's what is often not considered when we're giving TXA. I mean, there's a reason why it didn't work with very well GI bleeds right? Uh, because we don't know how long some of these people bleed. So we're probably not getting the effects based upon, you know, when people were injured and when we're administering the dose. I mean, that's totally valuable. So let me ask you this then, right? Okay. Let's just say we got, we got a horrible, you know, polytrauma out on the highway, right? And we're going to take the patient in to, um, you know, uh, the level two trauma center. That's a, a 15 minute flight. Is there a benefit? 
Is there not, you know, because one of the docs that, that we transport to you says, I think, you know, in a couple of years down the road, we're going to find that it's actually is causing harm. So don't even bother giving it if, this tra- if your transport time to you know, definitive care is, is short. I, I think there's some value to that. Uh, you know, I think there's one. I don't think TXA is necessarily super ben- beneficial if you're not transfusing blood products. One, I don't think TXA is necessarily super ben- beneficial if you're not transfusing blood products. Yeah, benefits say yeah. So uh, benefits TXA without blood. Uh, it's kind of elusive. I know there are some studies out there that have demonstrated that. I think Calpat uh, had uh, shows some benefit from from its use. Um, without blood products. But overall, you know, if you look at like matters from which came from combat matters too, which obviously the, it was just kind of a redo looking at blood products and stuff. And, uh, clearly the, the most benefit came from giving patients, uh, TXA who had received, um, cryo. Uh, so, you know, there's, it's my, my thoughts on it is always, as I, as I talk to people, I'm like, you kind of have to be able to, you have to create a clot before, you know, TXA will have its benefit. Okay. Uh, yeah, because, you know, it, it's, it prevents the breakdown of clots. So if you, if you don't actually have a clot, you know, formed, um, and I know half-life for it is long, you know, um, but you do get decreased efficacy pretty quickly over time. Um, but, but overall, I'm concerned that, you know, uh, what would we see without blood? Is it worth it? Uh, I, I believe that uh, some of this data that's come out of like Denver and Houston that kind of that kind of shows some different uh, phenotypes when it comes to, um, you know, clot breakdown uh, and people who maybe what if you clot? What if you don't break down clots? Right. So what if you don't break down clots very well uh, and it's called fibrinolytic shutdown. And, but then we're given a drug that also prevents the breakdown of clots. So right. could that could that have an influence on mortality? Oh. I, I think it's important to give, well, I should say this, I think it's probably pretty safe to give, you know, give within 30 to 45 minutes. And that's just a, you know, that's an opinion and there's no necessarily great scientific data behind that. Sure. But I think, you know, 30 to 45 minutes within a patient, within a, when a patient was injured, you know, it's probably safe. And could we see some benefit from that? Okay. So whereas Crash 1 and Crash 2 kind of talk about that that three-hour window, your opinion is there's probably more benefit if it's within that 30 to 45-minute window, uh, and particularly if they are receiving blood products or they don't have any other kind of um, uh, concomitant uh, clotting disorders. Right, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of hard to really say, you know, outside the hospital, you know, how are they – you know, do they have a, these different uh, comorbidities or do they have that phenotype that doesn't necessarily break down clots fast enough or do they break down clots too fast? Uh, and uh, that's why I think a lot of people are supporting the use. Hey, let's just wait till we get into the to the hospital. Uh, that way we have some place where we can do something like a TIG or Rotem that will help us you know, guide that resuscitation and let us know that, hey, TXA is needed here. Uh yeah, that's that's where I think about it. You know, also, you know, if you look at Crash Two, you know, most studies are all hospital based, and not many, very few, are pre-hospital based um, studies. So, what do we really know about it? And it's used there. So, let's do know, that study. Yeah, hey, uh, there's been a few. You know, if you, you look at the one we did, uh, we've done two on TXA from combat uh, from the pre-hospital uh, setting. Uh, neither have shown a survival benefit okay so but if you're out in combat yeah put yourself yeah. back out in the combat field and you're you know you're less than 30 minutes to wherever mm-hmm. you drop patient off are you giving it i think it's if it's if it's convenient for you to give yeah should you make it a priority over maybe other uh life-saving interventions no i don't think so Fair enough. but yeah yeah so but if you have hey i start blood you know and hey i can go ahead and slam some txa and you can you can actually probably give txa through the same line Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that's interesting because that, that kind of leads into another question, right? So I've heard, um, I don't know if it's just the Army Combat Medics or the Rangers or who, but there uh, is a, a protocol where they're basically starting their IV and they're giving a two gram flush as they're starting their IV. Um, we don't do that in the civilian world, right? We do our one gram over 10 minutes and then start our infusion, mm-hmm. right? So, why is it that if there's a benefit to TXA and if we should continue to give it, 
where do you think the hangup is for that protocol, that process uh, to deliver TXA as a two gram bolus um, making its way to the civilian world? And should we consider if we're going to give it, giving it as that two gram bolus? Uh, I think the uh, the two gram uh, bolus, uh, for the most part, came out of actually civilian literature. You know, the stuff they did with uh, looking at TBIs and TXA, um, and I think breaking it down between those uh, three different. I think they had three different arms, right? Uh, uh, two gram bolus, uh, one gram bolus, and I think a placebo. Um, but I. I th- I think the the idea was is that we can probably get uh, better overall outcomes if we're given a larger dose. Now, you know, it, it, what's that really show? Um, I think it's a little bit of a mixed picture overall from you know uh, benefit. Uh, I, I I will say that you know if we're not if if we're not using like things like blood peroxide, I talked about the you know is it more beneficial maybe to have a larger load, loading dose of TXA to have it around a little bit longer that way they can go ahead and when they do start receiving that blood we have that all that uh, TXA still around that's that's my belief i actually think that may that may work that if we're using TXA or we're digging 2 grams of TXA uh, and without blood products in the pre-hospital setting because we know we know how much of a advocate i am for blood but i understand also i'm a realist and understand not everyone's going to have that option uh, I don't think, uh, you know, when it comes to the push versus the versus dripping it in, you know, that's all based upon kind of this idea that, you know, it's going to cause hypotension. Uh, but I, I don't, there's not a lot of really supporting data that kind of demonstrates that you're going to get these events. Um, and so, you know, push it. In. That's, you know, been my recommendation now for a while. I think so, for probably five, six years now, I think even before I left active duty was just push it. Um, I don't think we're going to do any harm or cause any significant problems by just doing a uh, IV push. Gotcha. Cool. Great. And um, I, I guess just kind of to kind of circle back on that. So you think that if you are going to give it, it's probably, you know, it's probably safe. There might be more benefit to doing the IV push as well as just doubling the dose and doing the two gram uh, if the patient's not receiving um, blood products. I even think even if they are receiving blood products, you know, I, uh, I, yeah, that's my opinion is, yeah. is I, th- you know, based upon the literature and I think even based upon, you know, the committee on TCCC that it is safe to give two grams. Uh, it is safe to go ahead and give it an IV push. And yeah. that's a consensus um, position that, that uh, we've taken, um, you know, and I was part of that uh, paper that kind of helped uh, form those guidelines. And then obviously, you know, uh, as a Kazi member voted on it too. So. Nice. Awesome. That's, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I was, you know, hoping to hear from you. Um, obviously yeah. I know that that doesn't necessarily immediately translate to the civilian practice, but hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. And I, I do think um, there are some services out there that are at least pushing it now versus yeah. hanging it. Uh, but I don't think you see a lot of two gram out there. I think mm-hmm. if we do see it, it's probably in these uh, like uh, SWAT teams uh, or tactical teams or more uh, smaller teams where they have probably a little bit better control over, you know, the, you know, who, who's working for them and, and making sure that they are doing it correctly. Yeah. That, yeah. That totally makes sense. Um, I, the only other question, because you kind of already answered a bunch of the questions I had with regards to TXA. The only one that I did have um, is uh, with regards to pediatrics. Um, and mm-hmm. do you have any comment on that? Because I, you know, we generally, you know, like our program, we don't give it to um, anyone uh, under 15. There's certainly literature out there to support giving to pediatrics. Yeah, there, I mean, there's um, uh, data out there to support its use. It's safe, again. Um, to what age, you know, I don't know. What, you know, at what, what point at what age would you give, um, would you give a, any pediatric patient, you know, certain sort of treatments? Uh, you know, I don't think we're giving it to infants, but, you know, at what point do really kids also start injuring themselves and, and uh, you know, becoming victims of, of trauma, you know, uh, they start getting accidents and such, and not to mention uh, some of the, you know, awful things that do happen in the world where, you know, violence does happen to yeah. uh, children. So uh, it, it certainly is a, an option for, um, for people to give. Um, we, um, I'm trying to figure, uh, you know, Phil Spinella is obviously a, a big, uh, big 
researcher when it comes to uh, blood and resuscitation. Pediatric intensivist knows a lot of great information about that. Uh, I believe he is supportive of that. Uh, again, I'm not sure quite what age he's going to say, but uh, yeah, uh, you could do it. So kind of question. So <clears throat> like if two questions about TXA. One is I yeah. said the time TXA, the one gram bolus being given in the field, but not being followed up by the the drip um, once we get to the helicopter, is there really much benefit to just giving one gram itself or should we just, you know, not even worry? I think you should, if you have it and it's, and it's available, give it. That's what, that's what I believe. Um, and if you have, if it's given and you have the option to, you know, hang the, you know, whatever, hang the dose over, um, over eight hours and then do it. I don't see anything wrong with it. I just, I, I think it's overall pretty safe. I do, like I said, I do get concerned a little bit about, you know, once we start getting out from time from the patient was injured and we kind of start wondering, you know, the benefits of it. And there are those patients out there who uh, do have different uh, phenotypes when it comes to, you know, clot breakdown. Uh, so I, uh, I think we should just leave, just be a little bit cautious about it, but just be aware that those things do exist. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even at your level one trauma center, EMF brings in a patient from the scene, they have a 10 minute scene time, they get there and you can ship them right up to the OR. You're still giving it though. Um, yeah, I mean, why not? Um, I, it's, I think a lot of institutions still probably aren't giving it uh, as much as probably is recommended by some. Um, and that may be simply due to, it's just, even though it's been around a while that uh, I think there's still so, some skeptics, um, skepticism out there uh, in regards to it. And uh, it's not part of a regular uh, trauma algorithm protocol um, because, you know, trauma is a lot of algorithmic based and, um, and that's how you kind of a, you know, checklist, checklist, checklist. Um, and it's just probably not made its way into those settings yet in a, in a way. I probably didn't answer your question at all, but I digress a little bit. That's good. Well, so with regards to whole blood, our, so our, our program is actually uh, in the process of um, starting to carry um, starting to carry blood products, um, mm -hmm. and I and there has been some push within our facility. Um, they are giving whole blood within the hospital. I think they kind of realize that they've got more uh, supply than they really need for surgery. So now they're starting to make it available to other departments within the, the hospital. So it wouldn't surprise me if you know, we start having that available to us, which mm -hmm. got me thinking. So what are some of the logistical things that new programs should be thinking about as a program that is likely going to be kind of just starting um, to carry blood products and whole blood? I think first of all is getting uh buy-in from the trauma center um, you need uh, you know a good rotation schedule set up so you know you decrease that that wastage you know i i can i will always point people to strac uh in you know san antonio and what they've done and how they incorporated every single uh service uh ground ambulances helicopters um, you know, outlying hospitals and, you know, the trauma centers into this program to where they have a, a rotation system set up that allows them to have a wastage like less than 1%, which is better than RBCs, wow. right? So, you know, they, they have the ability to, to do that um, because they did, they did, they had buy-in because it started from, you know, the trauma uh, docs really wanting to kind of do this. And so, you know, once they kind of get that, you know, their heavy, you know, big weight behind them that they can kind of make things happen, it, it really helps, you know, and also they had great buy-in from, I think their medical direction that allowed them to kind of implement this in a manner that was uh, not ever seen before uh, and probably has yet to be duplicated yet in the United States. Gotcha. Uh, so, yeah, I think getting buy-in from the hospital um, where you can at least hopefully have some extra exchange and rotation programs. So you decrease wastage at ways that cost, the cost uh, doesn't um, come out of your service. So uh, I think a important thing people don't think about is, you know, how do you store it? Uh, and um, is it important to warm your blood before you transfuse it? Do you need to have it on a, uh, a pump? You know, those are all kind of concerns that people don't think about. And I think if you're in a helicopter, you have to think about how you're going to do that. Sure. You know, if there are, um, 
um, you know, we did a review last year uh, in transfusion uh, journal for the Thor supplement uh, that was going. Now, I've put this in some of the different groups before, um, but the the title of it, which I will uh, tell everyone just so they can look it up, which is very long, is called More Sophisticated Than a Drink Cooler or an old stigmometer, but still not adequate for pre-hospital blood. A market review of commercially available equipment for pre-hospital blood transport and administration. Uh, I've so I, I posted this. It's it's actually it's a you know because it's part of the Thor supplement. It, it is free for download, but it <laughs> covers all the you know all these different products out there that are available. So people really can kind of find a you know those those. Um, coolers and pumps and warmers that kind of uh, are optimized for something like a small helicopter. Nice. Uh, yeah. So uh, cool. I think a lot of people are like using uh, Bluetooth and stuff for their monitoring, which is fantastic. That stuff has come such a long way. Uh, but yeah, you have to kind of think about how are we going to store this? What's the rotation schedule going to be like? You know, you have little kind of say so and like, hey, what's our tighter levels going to be? Uh, how is that going to be stored? Is it going to be, you know, CPD versus CPDA1? Because, you know, CPD is good for 21 days where CPDA1 is good for 35 days. So, you know, you have, obviously, you're not going to say so on that. That's going to be something that comes from probably the blood bank that's going to determine that sort of stuff, but it's important to consider. So if I have 21 days, you know, how long am I really going to keep my blood out there? Um, you know, is it going to be a week before I rotate it back or uh, that way they have two weeks to use it in the hospital. And, and so those are things you kind of need to think about when it comes to uh, the pre-hospital product and blood products. Nice. I didn't even know that there were different, um, uh, different, uh, I, I, is it the way that the, the blood is processed or packaged or, or whatnot? They uh, just the different additives. Gotcha. Um, so the CPDA one has a, you know, a little bit different picture that gives it a little bit longer shelf life. Gotcha. There is some data out there that kind of says, yeah, for CPD, uh, you can sport, you can store it longer, but, uh, right now it's still recommended at 21 days. Gotcha. Nice. Cool. Obviously, that kind of that kind of segues into some of the questions uh, that we have, kind of regarding the logistics of mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing whole blood. So, obviously, shelf life was one of the questions that we wanted to know, and it sounds like you know twenty one to thirty five days, depending on what type you've got. And then, mm-hmm. with regards to the program, how are you going to rotate that back into the hospital so that it's not getting wasted? And you started to mention um, additives. Are the is whole blood. Um, are they adding in citrate like they are RBCs where you've got to think about uh, the effect that it has on calcium levels in the body? Oh, yeah. Uh, citrate's a, you know, that standard uh, additive that uh, prevents the clotting. So absolutely, okay. uh, you have to think about, um, you know, when should you start giving things like calcium? Um, you know, um, you know, had tip to, to Ricky Ditzel at all, uh, you know, for their kind of a big review of, of, you know, calcium and, you know, kind of recalling the term the lethal diamond yeah. uh i i from my perspective i don't think it's uh, uh a i don't think it's something to where we're we're consuming calcium to the extent to where we require um replacement without blood products um so you know if you look at the way the, the lethal diamond is you know it's the, basically that you know the triangle with extra couple extra ends on it. So yeah, coagulopathy, acidosis, hypothermia, and then obviously we're transfusing blood, which has the citrate in, which is going to consume, um, which can chelate the calcium. So yeah, I think uh, it's important to recognize that, uh, you know, and how do we, how do we treat that? You know, there's a couple of different ways, you know, traditionally, you know, Hey, we gave blood products, or I'm sorry, we gave calcium after four units of blood. Um, you know, that's kind of changed, you know, we changed that back in 2000 and, and uh, 15, 16 said, Hey, we let's just give a unit of calcium after the first unit of blood because we don't want to get behind um, because, you know, that's that's if you look at the data, it says, hey, yeah, there's increased mortality with hypocalcemia and trauma patients. So we're clearly patients are getting to that point. But uh, how do we uh, we can't necessarily identify those pretty rapidly right now from the combat setting and probably in most pre-hospital settings, even in EMS, that you can't necessarily identify that quickly. Um, so it's important to then give that first unit of, uh, I'm sorry, a gram of calcium chloride or a, uh, like 30 milliliters of calcium gluconate. Um, Interesting. 
we talk about gluconate because it's safer, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, is that, uh, is, are you doing that like anytime you give a blood or are you only doing that if you're, if you're kind of, if you think you're going down the route uh, M- MTP? Uh, it, I think uh, any amount of blood, you know, there is certainly a data also says that patients do and trauma patients do arrive with hypocalcemia. My problem is, is like, what do we do? What are we, is it clinically significant hypocalcemia? You know, is it something that is causing, you know, issues downstream that need to be replacement? So I'm not necessarily a fan of just saying, hey, let's just give calcium because it's a trauma patient. I'm a fan of like, hey, if we gave it, you know, blood, let's just give a gram of calcium and uh, move on from there. Gotcha. Cool. Well, that's, I mean, that's a really good point, right? You know, we don't think about that. I know um, traditionally, like you were saying, after three or four units, then you're giving the calcium, but you're already behind, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're going down that route, give it early. Yeah. And if it, you know, if you don't give it, uh, it you know, it's just like um, the hypocalcemia, there's somewhat of an association between uh, mortality and and that there's also uh, one study showed that, hey, people who are hypercalcemic, uh, there's also some sort of association with mortality. However, again, I don't think, you know, giving a gram of calcium isn't necessarily going to be uh, push someone over the edge, I don't believe. But at the same time, I, I, you know, if they're not getting blood, I don't think it's necessarily necessary. There's so many other things you can be doing. Gotcha. True. Fair enough. Yeah. Fo- focus on your patient and res- just resuscitate them and worry about the extra details, you know, later on. But, you know, we've all seen those patients who, you know, you're, they've get, they've gotten a lot of blood products and, and they're just mm-hmm. not responding to their bradycardia. Yeah. And so, you know, like, what's going on? Did you give them any calcium? No. Yeah. Um, and you don't bother, yeah. you know, we're not going to drop, we're not going to do an eye stat to see what their calcium is. We're going to assume. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, you know, if you do have an ISTAT though, and you do happen to have the initial lab draws or whatever, and I don't know, I mean, you can, I don't see anything wrong with treating that at that point. I mean, there's certainly a lot of patients in the ICU, uh, you know, I'll see that ICAL come back. I'm like, ooh, go ahead and give a couple grams of calcium. Um, yeah, give it. Yeah, gotcha. Are you, uh, are you giving one gram? Are you giving, you? I mean, obviously it's going to be dependent on what their ICAL is, but kind of yeah. how, how are you dosing that? Uh, I typically just give a gram, you know, unless it's, you know, really like below, um, uh, 0.9, I'll give, um, I'll just give like a gram. So it's like, if it's like one or 1.1, I'll just give a, give a gram and, gotcha. and see how they respond. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, there was a question that we had, um, uh, with regards to running whole blood, uh, through a pump, right? Yeah. Uh, because it has platelets in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we still run it through a pump or through a uh, warmer? I mean, obviously it should be warm, but yeah. can you run it through a pump. I get not a warmer, but a, but like a, or a, like a rapid infuser. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of systems do that now. Uh, seems safe. Uh, plus you got to think about after about 10 days, platelet functionality and whole blood really starts to drop off. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, if you're given it, you got to recognize that. And if you have platelets available, maybe you could supplement actually with, you know, platelets. So, you know, if you, if I have a 28 old day old blood, I'm probably not actually getting much out of there as far as platelets. So it doesn't really matter, but even so it, it doesn't appear to cause any sort of significant issues when it, um, when it's ran through record infuser. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Which is interesting because um, that was something else that, that Hunter and I were like debating. Like, is there a time when you are giving whole blood and component therapy simultaneously? Uh, and it sounds like, you know, that might be one circumstance where you may do that if you've got o- older whole blood where the place. Yeah. Is. Well, I mean, yeah, I've been trying to uh, talk about this for a little bit. Uh, the idea that, yeah, when our, we have older, older blood that we have less platelet function, uh, but now we also have, you know, cold store platelets, uh, which isn't out there a lot. Um, we have um, some data that we're putting together right now that um, hopefully we can submit for publication. But just overall, um, cold store platelets uh, can be stored between like uh, up to 14 days, depending on what uh, additive you're putting it in. So if I have that, that's fantastic. So now I double, you know, double the time that I can have platelets. And cold store platelets is really 
really seem to have a lot of great uh, hemostatic function uh, that, uh, that, you know, would be super beneficial with these trauma patients. The, the downside is they're only around for a very short period of time for, you know, for like 24 hours. So you're clearing them. But, it, you know, when I look at it, hey, this is a trauma patient. I don't need platelets around for days. I need platelet function now. Right. And then as we move along, you know, we hope to be able to supplement that a little bit uh, as we, you know, get maybe to the ICU to where we can do these tags, rotems and such, and we can have a more tailored approach to resuscitate. Gotcha. Interesting. So uh, the the cold the, the cold star cold star platelets are they are you are they are they given are they being given cold or are they still being warmed? Uh, you can still warm them, but uh, um, yeah, you can just use it with put it in with your administer when you administer blood. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, of course, you know you also have like cold sore plasma. So why can't, what if I can't carry whole blood, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, cause of what I know, I understand a lot of services can't do that, but you know, mm-hmm. do they have access to one-to-one to one? So now I can carry RBCs, cold sore plasma and cold sore platelets all between one and six degrees Celsius. Gotcha. Cool. Oh. Do I even dare touch on the topic of, uh, freeze dried plasma? Yeah, you can. Yeah. It's, I think it's a great product. I think they actually will allow more, uh, far more EMS systems to utilize um, a blood product uh, versus, you know, expecting everyone to have whole blood and or even cold blood. Uh, you know, you get a two year shelf life out of it. Um, it's I mean, there's countless studies that demonstrate this benefit. And even in a component therapy, you know, when you're treat when you're resuscitating a trauma patient, you should probably start with plasma anyway. So you start with yellow and then go to red, you know, because with plasma white plasma white can you correct? Right. I can address endotheliopathy, I can I can address coagulopathy. And we also know that plasma carries oxygen, right? So you do have dissolved oxygen in your plasma. What can I address with RBCs? RBCs I can maybe I can definitely carry oxygen. Um, maybe a little bit of coagulopathy, but that's, but that's about it. So, yeah, you know, using something that's going to help kind of at least stop the bleeding and can carry a little bit of oxygen is optimal versus just supplying oxygen. That's, I love that. I think that that's awesome. Start with yellow. Yeah. That's cool. Um, are you giving whole blood for anything other than trauma bleeding? Are you giving it for postpartum yeah. hemorrhage? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, this came out of um, the AMC, which is a military hospital, but at the same time, it's a level one trauma center in San Antonio. So we did an analysis of the use of whole blood in uh, non-trauma patients. Okay. So, yeah, it's absolutely safe um, to use in these patients. And, you know, I think certainly an option for um, many people uh, and uh, many programs. And I don't think we should kind of, you know, kind of steer away from it at all. I think we should actually try to, you know, take hold of it and utilize whole blood to this ability to uh, overall decrease the amount of waste that we may be having, depending on, you know, you know, what, um, your service and, and such. So, yeah. Cool. And then what about, um, what about in women? Are there any concerns with the whole blood for, with women of childbearing age? I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. if, if they're dying of hemorrhage, though, it's more important to resuscitate them. Right. And that's what we often fail to recognize. You know, we kind of get this idea that, oh, my goodness, this can never happen. No, it's going to their lives are going to be ruined. They're have children or whatever. That's uh, we have one. We have Rogam. So, um, yes, you can not only you can give it to women. In fact, you'll save far more women by giving them uh, whole blood versus uh, trying to, pres- you know, s- save them um, because they may have some sort of alloy immunization and, you know, cause some sort of fetal demise and cause themselves overall harm. Um, you know, it's a decent uh, review uh, done by uh, Mark Yezer, who's out of Pittsburgh, um, and some of his uh, people uh, that put together it kind of looked at the idea that, hey, this is ridiculous that we're not giving whole blood to, to women who are, um, um, RH, um, uh, uh, RH negative. So, yeah. And also beyond that, you can give it to children too. So 
There's okay. no reason to withhold whole blood from children either. Uh, certainly, oh. it's safe to give. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Christine Leeper is also out of that uh, Pittsburgh area, has done a lot of great work in that area, too. And, uh, you know, we, we recently did one from combat, looked at fresh whole blood. And, uh, yeah, if you, if you are a trauma patient uh, and uh, are dying, uh, one fresh whole blood is optimal. But, yeah, it saves kids, too. Nice. Is there is there an age limit to that? Yeah, I don't. You know, I wouldn't think so. I mean, are you gonna? Yeah, I mean, likelihood of picking up a neonate that's gonna need some sort of blood transfusion is probably rare. Um, so you know, but you know, most like I said, most what time at what age do these kids really start to, uh, you know, becoming injured um, outside yeah. of outside of that kind of general um, outside of standard deviation, you know, you know toddlers, you know, on up yeah. school at school age children. Yeah. 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 No, I know. I, my son got tagged on his dirt bike at five. I was like, yeah, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else, Hunter, that you wanted to kind of add to the conversation? Uh, well, I was just kind of curious. I know this is, we're going back to the old TXA again, but with the TXA, uh, really the efficacy with GI bleeds is because of the timing, correct? We can't quite see when the GI bleed started. So we don't know exactly where we are in that window. You know, that's overall my kind of understanding of everything and how I kind of view it is I, I don't think we're seeing it yet because of that issue. Um, you know, when when are they receiving it versus when were they injured? Uh, I'm sorry, when did they start having the, the hemorrhage? Um, so that's that's yeah that's my basic understanding. You know, I am I tell people all the time. You know, I'm 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 a knuckle dragger. Um, you know, and I'm just kind of an idiot who's been given the opportunity to do some pretty cool things and do things in life. Um, so I'm not the, I'm not the sharpest cookie out there, but I do try to, uh, kind of, uh, handle things and understand things in a manner that makes sense to me. Sure. And if I can do it, anyone can. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense that way. Cause that's the only way, uh, one of my, I've been told that, you know, and I was kind of like, well, it must just be the timing and. We don't really know when that occurred and so i didn't really understand it that makes sense. yeah yeah uh what else what else um is there anything else that kind of comes to your mind that maybe you were thinking about throughout this conversation that you think would be good to kind of talk about with this this topic um so i think you know overall when i look at things uh from a trauma patient perspective i think the idea of hypothermia prevention is often poorly managed uh, it's very, very important area that that uh, one, there aren't a lot of great products out there to address this. Yeah. Uh, even if we look at stuff in combat, even there, it's, you know, like the HPMK, right? The hypothermic prevention kit. Um, it's it doesn't work great. Um, there's nothing, nothing against the product at all. But at the same time, uh, we need something better. Um, and, you know, just simply, you know, covering your patient um with a blanket is often isn't sufficient so we, we need to work on that i think even from ems from combat from inside the hospital you know when they bring in what do we do they get naked and they're you know, sitting there on the on the on the bed so we, i think that's uh often overlooked um i think you know we look at things like access uh you know i think 18 gauges are perfectly sufficient uh, for trauma resuscitation in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, I think IOs are fantastic as long as they're um, sternum, sternal IOs or humeral IOs to be IOs that don't are, are a fan because it just takes way too long to really get into the central circulation. But these two, you know, sternum and, and humerus have a very similar sort of um, um, uh, access to the central circulation that allows for better uh, overall um, uh, routes for medications and blood. Um, oh, when you talk about burns, we talk about plasma, you know, that's another one that is, yeah. you know, I think, think is a very, an area that we'll, we'll probably see some change in the next few years. So yeah, if you're going to give, uh, you know, something for a burn patient, give plasma, right? Um, because okay. that, uh, that's, you know, going all the way back to world war two, they were, that's what they were doing. Um, and it's, again, we kind of got away from this idea that things, blood products were awesome, um, uh, you know, for about 30 years and gave a lot of crystalloid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously that's, that's gonna, that's gonna help their, their bodies retain 
more of the fluid, not get so much of that yeah. third spacing as well. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's uh, I think overall, you know, you know, if I just again from a trauma perspective, I look at damage to resuscitation. I really do look at it from you know, what are your triggers? What are your goals? You know, what are you trying to meet? Uh, when do you actually start transfusing? You know, uh, you know, I think you can start uh, doing it from a perspective like what's their injury patterns, uh, and then also look at their vital signs. You know, what what are your goals? You know, I think with whole blood, you can you can probably get to a higher blood pressure you know, somewhere around. 100 uh, um, millimeters of mercury for a systolic um, and maybe a heart rate less than 100. Uh, you know, I, you know, people always talk about, well, what about MAPS versus systolic? It doesn't really matter overall. Choose something that you're comfortable using. And I think, you know, try to meet that uh, because, it, you know, you talk to a million different trauma uh, surgeons and they'll be like, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. Um, just, just, it doesn't, you know, a lot of, they really, they do get concerned about systolic a lot. Um, but you know, we, we see people all the time in the ICU that have maps of, uh, you know, in the fifties and there's like hanging out perfectly awake. So I think this idea that, you know, we're, you have to have a map of 65 or else you're not perfusing anything is garbage. Yeah. Uh, um, certainly I think there's, there's should be, yeah, set a goal and get that in trauma resuscitation, but just use, use what you're comfortable using and, um, you know, be aware, be able to, to, you know, implement that wherever you go. Gotcha. Do you think um, that there's, do you think that there's value in, in looking at it from a perspective of mental status? Like I'm going to resuscitate them till I see an improvement in their mental status, or if I see a decline in their mental status, you know, then that's kind of the threshold that I need to use as a target for resuscitation. Uh, in absence of a TBI, right? So yes, is it, yeah, is it, is it penetrating trauma? I would say that's probably okay. I get worried about trying to utilize that whenever they, you know, maybe a blunt injury and, or blast injury or whatever, you know, do how reliable is that? So I, yeah, penetrating injury, probably not bad. Yeah. Fair enough. How do you feel about EMS systems or hospitals using saline or ringers when they don't have blood for resuscitation on the trauma patient? Yeah, that, that question comes up all the time in on, on no 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 please don't don't bother comes up all the time on social media, um, you know because you know people think that I'm just like this guy out there who just refuses to acknowledge you know that that services don't have blood and and I and I try to tell them like I'm I I'm not like this guy who can't understand that I bet I'll continue continue to advocate. Uh, for the use of whole blood. So in those occasions, I'm like, hey, you know, one, you do have your own guidelines or protocols, wherever it is that's going to, that you may have to follow. But, you know, I, you know there's a decent syst uh, systematic review that kind of looked at, uh, you know, pressures between 60 and 70 had some pretty good outcomes uh, when it came to hypotensive resuscitation. Uh, I, I don't think we necessarily need to get to 90 um, so, you know, my record, I would say, Hey, I'm going to shoot for a systolic between 60 and 70, you know, at least keep it around 70. I think it's probably pretty safe. Um, but you know, again, you know, I can't necessarily tell people, you know, when they have medical directors, they tell them to do something else, but right. so you say, think, uh, withhold from the fluids, unless you were getting down in the sixties and fifties yeah, I mean, if someone gets down, if they're in, they're in the 60s, I'm like, yeah, we better start uh, putting on a little bit of bolus or small boluses, you know. Okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, 250 bolus, you know, just a small amount, just see, make sure you get a response. Right. You know, we're not we're not slamming fluids in. You know, if you look at all the studies out there, you know, um, for the most part, most of them have said that pre-hospital IV fluids are associated with mortality in trauma patients. So um, I don't think it's necessarily wise to just go out and give it uh, to systolic at 90, even though if it, you know, I get it, that's from, you know, way back in from Biggle in the nineties uh, out of Houston. Um, but, you know, I also think that, uh, you know, we've come a long way since then and we can probably get a little bit more leeway in how much we, uh, how much we give and how much leeway can give on the blood pressure. Cool. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, definitely, you know, since you were working in EMS and since I started, you know, the the profession of pre-hospital care is, has evolved tremendously. And, mm -hmm. you know, now with, you know, more uh, 
ground services have what in years past would have been considered critical care level protocols, you know, at the at the 911 paramedic level, um, there's no reason why we're not being more thoughtful about the way we resuscitate our patients. And then that just kind of uh, extends into the critical care transport environment where yeah. we really should be having access to these uh, these new products that are, are going to improve outcomes. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if we look at the um, overall, you know, when do you transfuse blood in the pre-hospital setting, uh, you know, looking at things like the combat and pamper trials, uh, there's good analysis uh, of both those that kind of said, hey, if it's transport right in 20 minutes, there's probably going to be a benefit uh, transfusing blood. Now, if you look at some of the stuff with whole blood, you know, it's coming out of San Antonio and some other places, we are starting to see some benefit from that, you know, uh, you know, decreased mortality early mortality, which is be less than six hours or less. So I think the problem right now that we're having when people say, Hey, there's not a lot of benefit. The, the data isn't really supportive. I think it's because, because we don't have the, we don't have the information. We're, we're really just now starting to kind of get it out there and starting to get to the point to where we can have a, a good population to kind of compare. Uh, so for, I think moving along, we'll probably see a bigger benefit. Uh, but, you know, I can't, um, Sometimes, you know, even if you're looking at the study that came out of the UK, which I did not think was a, uh, a great study uh, based upon the, the methodology, uh, you know, they're saying, hey, no benefit between crystalloids and blood. Um, I mean, I, I, I got to admit, sometimes maybe it's just easy it's just to put them, uh, you know, put them in the ambulance and, and bring them to the hospital and then we can, we can do what we got to do in the OR from there. Do you see, uh, I got another one for you. Do you see any use of bicarbonate in the trauma patient? No. Okay. Sure. I, I just don't. I, <laughs> no, not, not in the Oh, but, you know, outside of maybe uh, TBI, right? So, yeah, maybe maybe a TBI to kind of um, help lower some ICP. I think there's is some supporting evidence out there for that. But I, I think for correcting some sort of acid-base balance, nah. And no use of, uh, obviously, vasopressors either. Oh man, there's a, there's a hot topic, right? Yeah. People like to talk about that. Um, so my, I did a study from combat that didn't show any, um, addition associated mortality with it, but we had a lot of trouble with our, uh, um, propensity matching, uh, just based upon, I mean, these people tend to be obviously far more injured and, and such. So it was kind of hard to kind of get a good, Hey, let's compare these two. I, I don't think, um, I think a lot of people confuse a squeeze um, with flow, right? I don't, I need flow. I don't necessarily need um, squeeze and pressure as pressure does not equal flow. Um, so we do need some sort of, uh, obviously we need some sort of blood pressure, but but how, how does that, uh, how do you do that in, in the best way possible? Uh, I do believe, you know, based upon, you know, what is out there that if we are going to use a vasopressor and trauma, I think it's probably going to be vasopressin. You know, look at the, what they did out of the pen uh, and showed that there was a decreased blood transfusion requirement uh, by giving uh, vasopressin early. Um, so is that, an, is that an option for, you know, pre-hospital setting? I don't think norepi or epis end up going to end up being the, the optimal uh, presser or, or phenol. Um, you know, but what do you do in the peri-intubatus um, intubation setting, you know, as a you know what they you know they talk about uh, what RSI stands for in pre-hospital hemorrhagic shock. No, this no. came this came this came out of Thor also. Uh, really stupid intervention. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we know we know there's associated mortality with uh, you know innovation in the pre-hospital setting and trauma. Clearly, some people have to have it. You know, it but is yeah something like phenylephrine or or um, you know push dose that be a, a, a nice option during there. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I think it's probably better to support the blood pressure in a sh short-term setting uh, while you have that, the uh, way you do innovate them um, versus, you know, not. Yeah. I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on that. So is, is your, is your thought that if you do have that trauma patient and you do decide that you need to go down that route to, uh, of RSI or you know, whatever, whatever, even if you're not doing RSI, just doing positive pressure ventilation, that there's a, there's a, a role for giving push pressers in order to bridge them through that, that period of, of, um, of performing the intervention and then 
uh, getting them stabilized with positive pressure ventilation, but not for continuous vasopressor support. I think that I think that's what I understand. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's what I'm trying to say. Um, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about that. So, well, I, think- I know that that I have uh, I've had uh, somewhat recently a, a trauma patient where we were I was concerned that they were going to arrest. We were doing chest tubes, um, and in that interim. Um, I had the EMS guys because they, they didn't have push dose epi, but they could, they could hang a dirty epi drip. And so I had mm-hmm. them do that and just start that just to support the patient while we were trying to get the chest tubes in and get the tube placed. And then at that point we turned it off and we were able to support them uh, otherwise. And so I felt comfortable doing that. I got a lot of, um, uh, a lot of questions about that decision. Um, but I felt like the patient was so tenuous that had we not supported his pressure, he probably would have arrested. And then, yeah, and that, that's the um, that's the issue. Um, I think in the peri-arrest patient, you know, the the guy that's just kind of hanging on uh, with all that sympathetic tone. As soon as you RSI him, you know, you're going to a full arrest. Like those trauma patients that are just hanging on, releasing all those catecholamines. I think a little, little bit of bridge push dosepi just to get him through that before you totally knock him out, knock the drive out. If we're talking about RSI induction, I think it's totally applicable. Um, like you said, I don't think it's anything to maintain a pressure if you can get the blood on board, but I think in the, in the trauma patient, that's, you just know, you know, they're sweating, they're already kind of getting shocky on you. They're getting weird, they're getting loopy and you just know you're, you're going to smoke them. They're probably going to rest on you. Then I think it's applicable to bridge them at least. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I'm I'm glad we agree on that. I think it's kind of the, (laughs) you know, I I think that's sometimes with the DKA patient, you know, don't get bicarb with DKA, but. I think if you're going to RSI a DKA patient that's already acidotic and you're going to have a, a who knows how long of a apneic tone, I think it's appropriate to give a bicarb push, buffer yourself a little bit, get the tube in, and then fix them on the bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's those things. Uh, those things. You know, medicine is so nuanced. You know, it's it's hard to really kind of say yes or no, uh, in for really much pretty much anything. I, clearly, there are certain things you should and shouldn't do, but. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 although I say, yeah, it's, it's not great. You shouldn't really be innovating these trauma patients, but obviously some patients need to be innovated. And how do you support that? So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying don't uh, don't utilize vasopressors. I'm just saying that it's it's not wise to generally use it for, hey, I'm just going to hang pressors on this trauma patient and then just go from there and just see how they do. Well, thank you, Dr. Fisher. Is there any anything else you want to add before we let you go, sir? Uh, I think we're probably pretty good. Okay. And um, yeah, but um, all, people can always reach out to me on trauma underscore daddy on Instagram, um, you know, on Facebook. It's just my name. Um, and then on Twitter, um, Fisher 81. And you can cool. follow the you can follow the, our page too. that, you know, that run with Nick and John, who are super smart uh, gentlemen, the St. Fisher Church of Evidence-Based Medicine. Awesome. awesome. Cool, guys. Well, hey, Thanks. thank you. This was such thank a you. such a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on, and and we'll have you back. Awesome. Take care, guys. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. I want to invite you to head over to academy.flakerit.com to check out the rest of our courses. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Flakerit Podcast. Bye for now. Yeah.